RWJ Barnabas Health Telemed offers you two convenient ways to see a doctor anytime, anywhere, without having to come in for an appointment. If you're in need of urgent care, you can use our app to connect with a provider 24-7, right on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. Or you can use our website to schedule a virtual visit with an RWJ Barnabas Health Medical Group provider or specialist. And you can even register as a new patient. Book an appointment online at rwjbh.org slash telemed. Your safety has always been our top priority and we've taken every precaution. So don't delay your care any longer. Get started today at rwjbh.org slash telemed. RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Hello again, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, alongside my good friend and broadcast partner, Chico Resch. And it is our pleasure to welcome you to this very special edition of Speak of the Devils. Chico, as you know, our podcast has met with great reviews and warmly been embraced by the Devils fans and hockey fans, because while it's primarily a devil story, it's also a hockey story by extension. Mm -hmm. Today, we've got one that is going to resonate not only in the living rooms and bedrooms in Morris County and Essex County and Bergen County, but in California and in Texas and in Illinois, because we've got the all-time best American-born hockey announcer, Doc Emmerich, with us today. It's going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be a lot of fun. And for people uh, who don't know Doc or don't know about him, don't be offended if Philadelphia Flyers or the Anaheim Ducks, that isn't his favorite team because he doesn't say it. He's very diplomatic, as you know, Maddie. But we all know the Devils have a special, special spot in Doc's heart. People don't realize he was here at the very beginning. Then he left, and now he's come back. But when you think of all the great players that have come through and worn that Devils uniform, I mean, it's one thing um, to be a great athlete. But then when you have an iconic announcer announcing your greatest moments, I mean, that's special for the player, for the fans. Uh, and so, I, again, you know, when you talk about the all-time great Devils, and I, we're, we're going to claim Doc, right, Maddie? Absolutely. He is one of us. Uh, and to be able to hear some of the inside stuff that he's going to share with us, because we're going, we're going inside uh, on this interview, it's going to be a special, special podcast. Well, we were all surprised when he announced his retirement just a short while ago because he wrapped up, even though it was in the bubble and he broadcast from his home, but he wrapped up with another Stanley Cup final announcement, his 22nd, can you imagine? Six Olympic winter hockey tournaments, 19 winter classics or stadium series games, and he sounded as good as ever. So I was surprised when he retired, but he also at the same time put out a book. And so there are a lot of stories to talk about as well. We would have had him on for that. And that book is published by triumph books. It's called off Mike: how a kid from basketball, crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. It's Doc's autobiography written by Kevin Allen, who for many, many years wrote for USA today, both have won the Lester Patrick award uh, from the NHL and USA hockey for uh, their contributions to ice hockey in America. And 
So two of the very best combining on the book. Uh, let me ask you, like, how did how did your relationship work with Doc? Uh, you know, he was the lead voice, the play-by-play guy is, but not always in every booth. Sometimes it's the analyst who is the lead dog, so to speak. How did you, coming into that booth, work your way to the point where you two guys were so tight? Well, I got to tell you, Maddie, I, I was very intimidated. I was nervous I, and I wasn't very good, you know, but I'm working with Doc Emmerich. It's just like, you know, I think of, uh, oh, what was his name? It was a McDonald. I forget his first name. I apologize. But his first year in the NHL, he got a, he got put on a line with Wayne Gretzky. He scored 50 goals. So I said, all right, Chico, if you just stay out of the way. And as Doc will talk about later, just said to me, Chico, I know you can be enthusiastic. Everyone can. Just bring the enthusiasm to the broadcast and, and just leave the details to me. And so we had this great relationship. But at the same time, and Doc said to me, look, Chico, you're going to make mistakes. It's like a goalie. You better tell, if you have a young son that's a goalie, you better tell him, son, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And it's how you overcome it. And Doc says, here's how you overcome it. Once you make a, a, a number of mistakes, which I did, he said, just think about that mistake heading to Mars. It's out there somewhere. People aren't going to focus on it for very long. And then don't lose your focus. Just keep going. And, and that worked very well. And I did make a lot of mistakes. But the one thing that, Doc, when we really became close, Manny, it was a time where I, I Doc and I, at that time, we had a rule. Doc does the play-by-play. And he didn't go on. After a goal was scored or the play was dead, he was so good about kind of telling us, okay, now, color man, it's your turn. So you could jump in and be all enthusiastic. He says, but what I do ask is don't jump in over the play uh, like some announcers were doing at that time. You might remember, Maddie, there was a period where, you know, color guys were jumping in and talking over the play, and everybody thought, oh, that's so great. Well, we didn't go that way. Um, So there was a time, though, in Philadelphia where I did jump in on the play, and I don't know why I did it, and Doc was not happy because he couldn't find the puck. It wasn't a big deal, and I shouldn't have said anything. But as it unfolded, and it, and it brought us so close, um, you know, I felt bad, and I could tell he was mad and at me, and, and he should have been, you know, like a coach. You're frustrated. He gave one up from center, goalie, and I'm frustrated. But anyway, it was this afternoon game in Philly. Then we went to Pittsburgh, and the next day after the game in Pittsburgh, the game's over, and, and I don't know how Doc's feeling about me. I mean, he's a loving guy. You know that, Maddie. But I just felt, uh, I hope he, he's not too mad at me. So he, he's pacing around in that booth there in the old Civic Center, and I'm thinking, oh, boy, what's he going to say? So he didn't leave right away, and I said, what's up, Doc? He said, Chico, I couldn't sleep last night. He said, I laid awake, and he said, I thought about how mad I got at you and, and kind of in some ways how rude I was to you. and you know, I don't feel that way about you. And I said, I know, Doc. I said, I know. And he says, I just laid awake and I just want to apologize. And I said, Doc, I accept. And that is very kind of you. The only thing I will tell you, <laughs> the same thing that you told me, Doc, as hard as you try, as much preparation as you do, as good as you are, you're going to make a mistake. And when you do, remember, let it go to Mars. And he said, you're right. And after that, we became like brothers. We're both Christians. 
where both uh, our lives are kind of centered around the same things and we would hang out, you know, on the road and stuff. Um, and I, I just got to tell you, we became so close after that. And so for me, uh, you know, it, it was it was a culmination of me who depended so much on Doc, relied on him so much that I thought, well, maybe you gave him just a little bit of insight. And uh, he he's thanked me for it since. And it just, uh, as you know, Maddie, sometimes differences solidify a relationship and take it even higher. And, and that's what happened in that instance. From a moment like that was forged a beloved broadcasting duo, Doc Emmerich and Chico Resch. And so without further ado, let's bring in your longtime partner, Doc Emmerich, to speak at the devil. So much we'll get to over the course of the program, but uh, welcome, and it is indeed a pleasure for us to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. It's it's wonderful to be invited and to have a chance to uh, re-spin some yarns, and hopefully people watching will hear something new during the next hour, but uh, given the number of times that Chico and I uh, uh, told the Pete Sikora chinchilla story, uh, <laughs> which I reminded Pete about that a, uh, a week ago, I heard from Pete. Uh, after I announced the retirement and Pete got in touch with me and uh, we reminisced about the chinchilla story that you told one Thanksgiving Eve, Chico. Uh, uh, hopefully there'll be some new stories tonight uh, in all of this. And uh, as was my tradition during the playoffs, uh, I have some minor league jerseys behind me here. This one was uh, sent to me by uh, a player named Steve Carlson, who is better known as Steve Hansen. He and his uh, two... Uh, a Slapshot Brothers signed the back of it, uh, but the Chiefs, uh, of course, Anita McCambridge is the answer to the question, who own uh, the Chiefs? <laughs> <laughs> I always liked this one. This is the Chicago Wolves, and oh. what I like, it, it looks fierce, doesn't it? And the thing I like the best about it is the green eyes in the middle mm. of that wolf. Yeah. Head. It looks fierce, doesn't it? Does uh, that's a beauty. There is the first one that I uh, ever earned money uh, with the Port Huron Flags, one hundred and sixty dollars a week, and uh, this is the one that we're going to live with for the next fifty minutes. Ta-da! Oh, <laughs> oh Doc! Oh. That is a Matt and the Maven Matt Lockley Stan Fischler T-shirt that would be awarded to. The question of the night, and when the when the email question came in, we kind of decided, well, maybe this will be it. Well, anyway, when the email question of the night was determined, that winner, Duck, would come down. We had Lucky Duck and Chuck the Duck, and the winner <laughs> would get a T-shirt. It's fantastic. Yeah. But here's something funny, Doc. Unbeknownst that you were going to do that, I brought mine with me. <laughs> Very good. I have I two. Yeah, I have two autographed T-shirts from my days with the Devils. One autographed by you and 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 Stan, and you see uh, uh, you autographed it actually to Joyce because she was a fan of the show, mm -hmm. and uh, and and Joyce did too. Uh, to Joyce with love, Stan Fischler, quote, uh, and in parentheses, and it's no joke because, of course, as you know, Stan always, <laughs> always told jokes. And the other one was, strangely enough, and the Devils were not a team that did this very much, 
But in the spring of 95, actually the summer, uh, because of the popularity of the crash line of uh, uh, Peluso, uh, Holik, and McKay, they came out with a crash line T-shirt. And I got Ooh. the autographs of all three guys, and I have prized that. I don't collect much. I don't stay. I, I save a lot, but none of it's valuable. But I do have the autographs of uh, Mike Peluso and uh, Bobby Holik and Randy McKay. Uh, uh, on a crash line T-shirt that came out in 95. And I think they sold quite a few of them at the Meadowlands, especially during the series with Detroit. So mm. that's what I have. But but that's up there staring at everybody during the rest of the time that we might have. <laughs> quick, quick, quick story here about this T-shirt. So two summers ago, Stan invites me to come to a bar in New York, Carragher's. It's a great Oh, Lord, you didn't go. Oh, I did because <laughs> there was a table <laughs> hockey championship being held there, and Stan had a bunch of friends that were involved in it. They were also shooting it as a documentary, which, by the way, has been entered into a couple of uh, the uh, film festivals uh, that are around these days. At any rate, so he tells me, hey, could you come out and support the event? So I said, sure, and I dug out one of these shirts. I had emphasis on the word had two remaining. Oh, so I take, right. take one with me. I go to the event. Stan then informs me that he told the person running the event that Arda O'Cal, who was working for MSG at the time, and myself would stay the whole time and we would <laughs> announce the final. So nice idea. To, yeah. Well, one hour visit and support turned out to an eight hour visit and support. At any rate, so I said, well, Stan, hey, while we're here, remember these days? Because he had a bunch of people with him. And Stan said, thanks for the gift, Maddie. And he <laughs> took it. And he has it. So, yeah. so I, I am down to this is the last one. I can't fit into it, but I've got one. Anyway, enough about uh, <laughs> uh, uh, about that. Hey, Crash Line, did that just come to you, by the yeah. way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it would it just seemed like the way they played. I did hear from Bobby last week, and he is uh, – he was uh, out in um, uh, Wyoming, uh, where he often is. And I, you know, when you haven't seen someone for a long time or haven't thought about them, you just think that their kids are the same age and the same size and everything that they always were. Uh, Hannah, who was such an equestrian lady, young lady, is in medical school. Gee, does time ever pass. <laughs> so good for yes. her. Doc, you didn't seem to. Here's what people wonder if I'm watching. I mean, some of the things that you'd come up with, I'd think, wow, did he just throw that off off the top of his head or or was it sort of something he had thought about for a while? And I was thinking of the crash line that you made so famous. There was that line as well as any other um, lines or tags that you put on something or someone that you kind of felt good about that really caught on. No, I, I don't think so. I I just I I loved our group being together because things would just sort of happen and we'd spin off one another. I don't know who came up. I, I know Stan came up with Chuck the Duck, but then it evolved because, it, because he gave it away. Remember, he gave Chuck the <laughs> yeah. Duck away. So we had to come up with another one. And and this Chuck the Duck was employed by Larry Gaines and, and traveled with us, got stolen by the producer of the Rangers once, and then got recovered. 
and he would wind up uh, he would wind up on a, on some kind of a water ski down in in Sunrise, Florida, in the Everglades, and I was worried about him getting eaten by an alligator outside the arena where the Panthers played. He wound up on the bridge there in Vancouver. You would you would see him in the strangest places. And one of uh, the great gifts given to me by you guys when uh, I left the broadcast for the Devils is Chuck the Duck. And uh, Chuck is over here. I'll, I'll show him to you before. He still has the same cigar, but they, they nicely enclosed him in heavy plastic. But I thought that was a brilliant idea. I thought Chico Eats was also a terrific idea because it was a new arena in downtown Newark. And people needed to be acquainted with all of the various places there were to eat. And who better to sell food than Chico? And he started to get an entourage that would follow him around to these various spots and, and be a part of it. And if he dug into some ice cream and, and uh, took a bite of it, uh, he really sold it by how much he enjoyed it. And then, then the T-shirts came out with the checklist on the back. And you had to check all the boxes, which meant you had to go to all of the places they sold food. I thought that was a brilliant idea. I didn't have any great ideas. Some of these things just came to me, like the uh, like the notion of uh, when when you had you know like the crash line or guys like that, and, and usually they threw the other line that was like that out against them. And so we'd talk about six Dobermans and one tennis ball because sometimes those weren't, they weren't the smoothest guys. But if you ever saw a bunch of dogs all playing in the backyard and they all were after just one tennis ball, you realized how unpredictable it could be. And, and, and they were having fun, too, the dogs were, just like these guys were and going after the puck. I, I didn't really think I had anything that unique to offer. But the crash line, I was proud of because uh, they liked it. And Bobby actually came mm -hmm. up to me once after a game in 95 and said, thanks for naming us the crash line. I, I appreciated him saying that, uh, but that was sort of their identity too, wasn't it? It, it, it sure it was. was. What, what, what people don't know about Doc is his sense of humor. I mean, we see you chuckle and we know your wit. But oh, this we is Diet Pepsi, by the way. Uh, if you see me drinking okay, something out of a silver can, yeah, it's, I'm okay here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I apologize, but, Chico. I interrupted. No, that's all right. We would have our meetings, which Roland Dratch, our producer, would would uh, run it at 4:30, and then Stan Fischler would tell a joke, right? And I texted him or I emailed it today in in uh, uh, Israel, and he wanted me to tell a few, but I couldn't. But here was the bottom line. There was one about a dog, actually, dog. He said there was a sign. He says, no, dog, this one. There was a sign on the lawn that said dog for sale. He said to the owner, I'd like to meet your dog. He goes to the backyard and, and the dog, he's a talking dog. And, and the dog starts saying, yeah, yeah, I had a pretty good career. I was in the CIA for a while. I solved a lot of cases there. Then I worked at JFK and security. And now that I've retired, I'm getting a pension. You can imagine Stan and getting yeah, a right. pension. Right. And, and he said, um, you know, and, and on the side, I, I fix computers. And so the guy who wants to buy the dog says to the owner, how much you want for that dog? That's an incredible dog. And the owner says, how about 20 bucks? And the guy says, 20 bucks for that incredible dog? Why only 20 bucks? Because he said he's a compulsive liar. 
<laughs> okay, that sounds like that, Sam. You guys nailed it. And that was Sam Fishman. I had to give it to you, Doc. But e- the, every the production was, meeting was a joke. Absolutely. Yeah, he sent me one uh, about two weeks ago, and it was uh, the uh, two anteaters uh, meet up on the road. And they know one another from the past. And so one says, so how you been lately? And the guy said, well, the ant- the other anteater says, I only ate 10,000 ants today. And the first anteater says, you want a diet? <laughs> 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 well, uh, the, the, those production meet- meetings were fabulous. We're going to get back to a lot of the time that Doc spent with the devils. But we want to bring in a special guest. Doc, in your book recently published by Triumph Books, off Mike, how a kid from basketball, crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. You mentioned that in your second go round with the Devils, you were fortunate enough to join them as this gentleman, Larry Robinson, yes, Doc Lemaire, uh, uh, Jacques, the head coach, Larry, assistant coach for a Devils team, Marty Brodeur, uh, made his mark that year as well. And Larry's been kind enough to join us. Wonderful. Larry. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Hi, good to see you. My goodness. What a treat this is. And just coming out of my shoulder, going up the corner of the wall, do you recognize that stick? I was just looking at it and I go, it's like one of my old sticks. It is. My wife, Joyce, got, got that stick for me in one of those memorabilia shops. Yeah. Uh, for my birthday. It was a Larry Robinson autograph stick. And uh, once when we were uh, when I was doing a game in Detroit and the devils were coming in here, I took it down to make sure he authenticated, made sure that it was one of his. He said, yeah, that's one of mine. And that's uh, that's my signature on it. So I know that she didn't get ripped off. That's a Larry Robinson. <laughs> and it's, it's about the only yeah, it's about the only place you'll find any of my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and it's wood too, right? And it's wood. You can't. Yeah. I actually, you know what? When I sold my house in Florida, I was living in Walden Lake, and I sold my house, and we're moving all the stuff and everything. Else. We had a moving company, and. I look up into my attic. There, you don't really have attics or places to store anything in Florida because it's everything's everything um, is on one one level. Yeah, you don't have a basement or anything. And lo and behold, I got six of those sticks sitting up there. I I tell you what, it was probably the best <laughs> gift I've ever gotten. I didn't even know they were up there. So, <laughs> it was it was good. Hey, well, Doc, now what? Hey, you Larry, I- are you going to start riding now? No, no. My wife rides. Uh, Larry and I always no. talk about horses. We have six and uh, my wife rides. Uh, um, the horse that I ride, Larry, is the one that um, they used to see outside of Kmart that you'd feed quarter yeah. is. Yeah, that, the hard part was standing in line behind five-year-olds. It was sort of self-conscious. But no, no, I'm not. I'm not going to yeah. ride, but uh, but I, I told her what you said about some horses liking beer, and she has discovered that that is true, that they that horses sometimes actually find beer as a medicine. I'll bet you two guys didn't know that. Larry Robinson taught me that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting. I, like, I yeah. have to teach you one thing, Doc. That's what... That's what <laughs> I never realized I had something in common with a horse. Now I do. And we both like beer. No, we, we actually hey, Doc, I, I'm going to put you on the spot. Larry played for the great Montreal Canadiens, and I know one of your idols growing up was Danny Gallivan. 
And guys, and Larry, I don't know if you've ever heard Dawkins do a pretty good imitation of Danny Gallivan. I don't know. I know I'm putting you on the on the spot. And big, remember he called Larry something. Could you give us a little touch of of Danny Gallivan, Doc? I, I will. And then Larry was going to say something that I wanted to hear what he had to say right out. This was one that uh, that uh, occurred in, uh, I think, in the um, late 70s. Now Robinson threw center to Napier, who will marry Pat Hughes' sister in June. And on that matrimonial note, Canadians arrive at the North Star's Law. <laughs> you did, all you did was pass the puck, but Danny had a way of making it work. You were well, about to say something, Larry. I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. Same day when, when Chico brought up uh, Danny Gallivan, I, I had the opportunity to to go with Red Story and Danny Gallivan on a speaking tour down through the Maritimes. Wow. And uh, we were down there, I think, for three and a half days. And it was three and a half days of non-sleep. They, <laughs> they would not stop. One would tell a joke, then the other one would tell a joke. And then this one would tell, and I, I laughed the whole time. And <laughs> Danny, Danny Gallivan, uh, Doc, um, you don't have to take a back door to anybody. I think uh, when, I, when I look at the games now uh, and the fact that you're not going to be around uh, doing these games, um, We've lost, uh, well, not lost, but we're losing two icons who uh, really had a feel for the game. You knew how to call the game and you, you made it personal and you made it fun to watch. So uh, you are going to be sorely missed. Uh, I know my wife and I, uh, when we look at the games and we see who is broadcasting the games, we always get a lift when we know it's you that's broadcasting. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I I'm I'm in awe of uh, of your saying that, and and I'm I have I have one autographed jersey here, and it is that one. Yep. And Ooh. it is from 2000, and it is it is my you know even though the first one in '95 was exciting. And and the one in 2003 is the one that I still have this ring for. Right. Uh, that's the one I saved because it looked like it would never happen. It was the year you took over. And, and my lasting memory of the Stanley Cup celebration in Dallas is you wearing Peter Sikora's jersey on the ice while everyone was celebrating because Pete couldn't. He was at the hospital. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of great memories from that time. But I have the Scott Stevens jersey signed by everybody on that team. And as I said, I don't save much, but that one is prized because of that year. Yeah, it was a, it was a special year. Uh, I mean, um, I've, I was the most surprised when I got the phone call from, <laughs> uh, from Lou that morning. And uh, I guess it, it was a good thing because I didn't have time to really think about it. So, uh, <laughs> But uh, no, that's 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 great, Doc. I mean, uh, that that too is one of my favorite uh, favorite times as well. And it's so stupid. What am I doing running across the damn ice? I could have slipped and fell and knocked myself out. <laughs> but of course, I never never thought of that. <laughs> well, well, Larry, glad you didn't. Yeah, for sure. And Larry, we're so thankful for you joining us uh, tonight uh, and to uh, pay tribute to Doc and share some laughs. Uh, laughter abounds. 
uh, around Doc. He's got a great sense of humor, Chico mentioned. And thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't have missed this for all the world, uh, Doc. You, you're a very special, uh, very special person. And uh, we're, the hockey world's going to miss you a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Right, tell guys. Jeanette, I said, tell Jeanette, I said, hi. I will. She's actually listening in the background. Oh, good. Okay. Hi there. <laughs> Hold on. Hi, Jeanette. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yes. Great. Good the for picture her. just got a lot prettier. Yeah, it did. That's wonderful. Good to see her. We yeah, thank you. Much, yeah, and, uh, thank Have a happy retirement. Thanks so much. I'll call you for horse tips. <laughs> Doc, That's a wonderful surprise. That. Isn't yeah, that a well, great surprise? Wow. Well, we have a couple more to be honest okay. with you. So, but and we'll get to them as time goes on. Uh, but what was it like uh, when you came to the Devils that second time? They were about to embark on a fabulous run. What did you find when you came to the Devils the second then? time? Yeah, the uh, second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I arrived in '93, the same time that Jacques Lemaire became coach, and uh, and Larry was assistant. And Ken Danico said the third day of training camp up at South Mountain, he said, I have learned more about playing defense in three days than I learned in all the previous years of my life. And then there was this kid out of uh, the Utica Devils who would have been sent to Albany that year uh, if he hadn't made it, who had the tail going down the front of his mask because he didn't want to presume he was going to be the Devils goaltender, Marty Brodeur. And they won the first seven games out of the blocks. And I had been in Philly for the previous five years and they missed the playoffs four out of five years. So I wasn't used to this kind of winning. Uh, and, and he and uh, Chris Terreri shared the load uh, a lot that first year. And then it became pretty much his net the rest of the way. I was asked the other day, uh, I was on with uh, Eli Zaret and Bob Page and Danny McLean in Detroit. And we were talking about uh, starting a franchise out new. And Chico, you'll be very proud of me. Uh, starting a franchise out new. And I said, uh, and you could only pick one player to start with. I said, well, you, the goaltender plays 60 minutes. Uh, a really good defenseman might play as much as 25. And a really good forward might play 20, 21, 22, depending on power plays. The goalie's got to be out there all the time. And so... I had 18 years in a row in New Jersey watching Marty Brodeur. So he'd be the guy I'd pick. And they said, no, not or or how or any of those. No, I said, I would have to have a goaltender just like Denny. A baseball team would have to have at least one pitcher to start the rotation who could win a game. I think you won 30 or 31 one year. And that that's what you need. I mean, I, I always liked high scoring games, but I always liked games that were one, nothing too. Doc, when you of came course. to the devils, you know, you, you had other options. Did Lou Lamarillo, did he talk to you about coming to the devils? I know you were working for MSG, but I'm just curious how, how that unfolded where you came back to the Devils. Yeah. Um, here's what happened. I was, uh, uh, I was, with MSG from 83 to 86. And then the rights went to Sports Channel New York. And I was, and it is in the book, I was offered a, uh, to stay, I was offered a 60% pay cut. Well, 
you do get the message <laughs> when that happens. And so fortunately, Bob Gudkowski, who ran Madison Square Garden Network, said, Marv Albert misses over half the games on radio, so we could use a full-time backup. So I wound up doing the Rangers on radio for two years. And then the Flyers, and I, I was doing some ESPN then. And then the Flyers uh, had an opening that they wanted to create. And so Bill Clement and I went to the Flyers in 1988 on a five-year contract. Um, at the end of the five years, Joyce was working in the ticket office. I was working Ooh. for the Flyers. Uh, I thought they were going to renew me, but um, time passed and the summer went and my last check came and time passed and I kept waiting. And uh, then eventually they explained to me that, no, we're not renewing you. Uh, we would, however, like your wife to stay. Um, so, and they, they actually, they made the right choice in both categories, but, um, so, uh, you were very kind to say that I had a lot of options. Uh, Lou had been inquiring, uh, and on, I think with, with the, uh, uh, with the, uh, uh, the vote of sports channel, New York about my going, uh, and doing devil's games. And as soon as it became clear that I was no longer the Flyers announcer, um, very quickly that happened. So that became my first option. And if I had any others, I didn't know about them. And I was very happy to to come on board with um, with Sports Channel and Jerry Passaro and those folks out there. And at just the right time when they were going to not only get better, but get great. And it was just luck. Mm, well, yeah. luck is the residue of design. And as one of your uh, heroes, if you will, in the broadcasting world used to say, Paul Harvey, now you know the rest <laughs> of the story. That was a very yeah. good question, Chico. Yes, indeed. You. Uh, you mentioned Kenny Danico uh, shortly into Larry Robinson, Jacques Lemaire's reign, said how he had proved in such a short period of time more than he had previously. Well, Dano actually is with us. Oh, my uh, goodness. Uh, about that. Oh, um, there he is. Dad. Hey, guys. Hi, Doc. How are you? I'm, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? And congratulations again. I know we shared text, but uh, what a wonderful career. Devils fans were spoiled for, for so many years of, of listening to you. So Kenny gets, uh, in a game against Vancouver, Russ Courtnall cross-checks him in the mouth and knocks out three teeth down into his mouth guard. Now they're knocked out, but they're buried in his mouth guard. So the next day he spends the whole day in the dental chair. And of course, being first of all, a hockey player, second of all, rugged, third of all, Canadian, because that I mean, you wouldn't be Canadian if you if you didn't try to come back after being out for a day and losing all those teeth. And it was still in the, in the mouth guard that he showed me after the game. It's a matinee game two days later on a Saturday afternoon. And he gets a There's a two on one break. And Kenny is the guy carrying the puck. And he passed off. I would have loved <laughs> if he would have scored after having root canals and being in the dental chair the whole day on Friday, scoring in a matinee game on Saturday. But he passed off. So that's oh, how it was. Doc, 
Doc, I believe, and tell me if this is wrong, Chico, that you ended up with that mouth with the teeth in it and donating it to charity. I don't know if that's true, but I believe you would ask me for that mouth guard with my teeth severed in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I'm a little more of a collector than Doc. Doc has a limit. <laughs> but here's what I want to ask Doc with Kenny. Now, Doc, when somebody like Kenny, who scored and and um, didn't do it regularly, did you get a little sense of more sort of exuberance? I know, Kenny, were you happy with the calls of the goals? I know Kenny had high standards on what he expected when he scored, but I'm just curious, <laughs> you two guys, if you worked that out. I was more shocked than anything when I scored. And I got the, <laughs> got the bench going as <laughs> in 2000 when I scored the Stanley Cup. My only Stanley Cup Finals playoff goal, and I, I know Doc wasn't doing that game, I believe. But having said that, I'm no, sure you're right. was just as shocked as I. I think Doc was just as shocked as I was when he was doing our game. <laughs> if I scored, I likened myself to an offensive lineman where we don't score a lot of touchdowns, but you do your part. But like I said, I mean, it's just an honor to be with Doc because, listen, being in the broadcast industry now, watching so many games, NBC Sports, and, and all the games Doc has done through his illustrious career, I mean, just the calls time and time again, those moments where you need a special pick-me-up, he always brought it to you to the fans. That's very kind of you to say, here's a question I have for you because I never asked you this. So now, it's, uh, it's, it's this one. It's uh, 2003. <laughs> it's game seven. And it's three to nothing. And it's the last minute. And Pat Burns says to you, or does he just tap you on the shoulder to finish the game and protect the shutout? Did he say anything to you? He said go. I, I did get tapped on the shoulder, and obviously he knew what it meant to me and knew it possibly could be my last game. But if you recall, guys, I fell in the corner. I dropped my stick, dropped my glove. I was just trying to swim on the ice, sweep the puck out of the way. I mean, I, I'm like a kid. I got goosebumps. I got tears in my eyes. Call my best friend. I say, you're not going to believe this. And he goes, you're in tomorrow night, aren't you? I go, how did you know? Because now I think he's nuts. And he put me in. And uh, I was just so grateful. And obviously, that last shift, a very special moment for me. But I looked like uh, I was still in squirts that last shift. I, I was so nervous. <laughs> even, though we had the three <laughs> even though we had the 3 nothing lead, it was the excitement of winning a Stanley Cup, knowing I'm going to retire. And, and, and I'm grateful to Pat for putting me out there and obviously for playing me in game seven. <laughs> Was it Jeff uh, uh, Friesen uh, scored? He scored one or two goals in that game, didn't he? I'm trying he to end up with the game winner. Remember, I mean, obviously that's yeah. what makes our sport great. And all those great calls you made with, with players that are the unsung heroes. That's what I love, Doc. And I know you appreciated that so much as well. Mike Ruff, you know, just gets in the lineup. He wasn't playing much in the playoffs. Oh, all he does is score the game winner in game seven. How about that for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, I was able to find a copy of the score sheet because I didn't know if he had one. You know, players don't collect a lot of statistical things on themselves. And Mike didn't have the score sheet from the seventh game. Well, I did. And it was very easy to make a copy of it. I think I made a copy for myself and then just gave him the one that I had because it was a pretty clean copy. 
And uh, so it's got his name there. And I think he was one of the one of the three stars in the game, as a matter of fact, uh, because he had the, the winning goal. But I'll never forget, too, you weren't there because you were in the dressing room with the rest of the guys after the game's over. So we have several interviews and you were one of those. But now in to talk with Matt Lachlan comes Jeff Friesen. Matt, you'll remember this. So I'm sitting there waiting for my turn to go on. And he comes in and he sits down on the stool and Matt and he talk about the game and the goal. And in his hand is a bottle of champagne uh, with the cork still in it. And it hasn't been opened or anything. And he's, he, he walks in carrying this and he sits down and he puts the bottle of champagne on top of the table <laughs> and then he does the interview. And then the interview's over and the floor director says clear and there's a silence. And then Jeff turns to Matt and says, so what do I do now? And Matt says, well, why don't you start by opening the bottle? <laughs> yeah. hey, hey. Uh, well, you know, what, what a wonderful time it was for Jeff and uh, the Devils that run to the Stanley Cup. Dano, thanks very much. We know you're on Thank the road. You. Your, wife, your wife, Margaret, is driving, I hope, because there was a time you would drive, talk to somebody on the phone, and there might be a newspaper on the steering column as well. <laughs> You know, you know me well. I still don't know where we're going, but this is a much needed break for my wife. She works extremely hard. So, yes, she uh, took over the driving range. She drives anyway. You know that, Maddie. Yeah, I do. All right, Dan, uh, Doc, again, Doc, real pleasure to be on with you. God bless. Enjoy retirement with your family, you. your dogs. And, uh, boy, it's just such great memories that thinking of all the great calls you made and certainly for our devil. Teams. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks Dano, a lot. Thanks very much. Dano did not score very many goals, but they were noteworthy. When the guy who's paid to stop the puck from going into the net scores a goal, it's even more so. And <laughs> Doc, you had a chance to do just that. Odor controlling the net. Every Devils fan knows that. And the man who jumped very high and was excited as could be was against the team he grew up cheering for and for whom his dad was a longtime photographer. Marty Brodeur joins us. Marty, good to see you. What what do you think about when you see that that highlight? Oh, I love it. I wish I could have done more of that. <laughs> hey, Doc, uh, how are you? I'm good. I just want to stop by and, uh, and say hi and congratulate you on your uh, an amazing career. You know, obviously, thank you. you. A lot to our... Uh, to our fans, but to us, the players also, the way that you conducted yourself throughout the uh, throughout my career, obviously, and even past that, always put a smile to our face when you left the Devils. But you you came uh, and made uh, a couple games with NBC or NBC Sports. I know we worked a lot on those uh, channel, but it was <laughs> it was it was fun to see you. Yeah, thank you, thanks so much. Yeah, that those were there were thrilling times and I'm sure that that goal meant a little more in that it was scored against the Habs. You used to go into bell center and, and just humiliate everybody that paid the price of admission to see the Habs play. Some of your most outstanding efforts of all time were in bell center. And I don't know if it was just a little extra you got there or whether maybe I was, I was expecting the extra and I always seemed to get it, but those were magnificent times for me, and I thank you for it because I got to ride the coattails of some wonderful players, including yourself, 
for 18 years. And I will tell you one thing that I will never forget. And it's just perhaps it's a tribute to your parents and perhaps it's an equal tribute to yourself. So they give me the car and a few other things out on the ice and my family's there. And then they have the anthem and you're about to go to the gold crease and play a game. And I can't imagine what's on your mind. And before you do, you skate over and you say hello to my stepmom, who is in her 90s at that point. And she, uh, you should know, is still living today, still answers the door, still, though uses a walker, is living independently. And she still remembers 30 in red. And I want you to know how much that meant to her and how she remembers you. And uh, it was just a small thing, I'm sure, to you, but it was a big thing to all of us. Well, that, that's awesome. But again, I think uh, going through all these celebration, uh, you know, the game of hockey is still a game for me. So whenever I had a, I had a chance to, to congratu congratulate someone on the ice for their achievement, uh, I never passed that on. Uh, obviously, I, I grew up in, in sport. Uh, you know, obviously, my dad was a photographer, so I know, I know how to deal with uh, people that are around the game. And, uh, you know, I, I saw different athletes dealing with my dad a certain way. And I made a promise to them that I would never be one of those guys. So <laughs> I always go up uh, above and beyond if, when, when I could. Did you ever try on one of his old masks from the 1950s? Oh, I have it downstairs. I, I could go get it if you would give me a minute. <laughs> yeah, I, I would love to see it. And right, I'm sure hold, hold Chico on, on would too. You, you, you guys can check. I'll be right back. Yeah, we'll, we'll fill the time, Doc. Great question. But that brings me to a point, and Chico, you know this well. Doc, your mind works so that you want to know details. You want stories, stats we can all figure out, but you want to know the story behind the player. Have you always had that inquisitive mind? No, I, I, I'm probably not, but um, it was being drummed into us at the first Olympics that I worked in 92 by CBS that stories were something that could be remembered long after stats. And so they would give us a three-ring binder full of stories about every player from every team. And the binder got even bigger when, when women's hockey began in 1998 in Nagano. And so uh, it was not lost on me that that this was something that people would remember, like Pete Sikora's chinchilla, <laughs> long after uh, they would remember whether a guy scored 50 goals in one year or not. So uh, that's why it was always fun. And it was also the drawback of this past summer in August. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, yeah, did so that's, that's the mask that my, uh, my dad played with. Oh my! Now, did he play some Marty with no mask at all? Yeah, he did at first, and uh, he, he was playing the same era as Jacques Plante. And Jacques Plante got the first mask, obviously. And a few weeks later, my dad got his made uh, just like that. My you can tell goodness! That he had a couple of shot off the nose here that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, it's kind of pretty neat souvenir that uh, my dad left left me when he passed away. I guess it is. Wow, what a story that has. <laughs> you know, Marty, what people don't know, and we're just talking about backstories, you know, I knew your dad very well, and he could he could do photography and all that. But did he ever uh, give you tips? I mean, 
were you a goalie just because he was a goalie or did he, you know, how did that unfold where you decided to put the pads on? Yeah, actually, my mom was upset that I became a goalie. She, she wanted me to be a forward. Uh, but my dad certainly didn't say a word, but he was he was pushing me pretty hard to uh, being a goalie. But uh, I think the, the advice was, was a, it's funny how he told me, he says, you know what? Make sure you're nice to your teammates all the time. Like if you got to take him out to dinner, make sure you take care of it. Do do everything you can because you don't want to start playing against uh, ten other players on the ice. So at least your players they, they need to love you. If they want to sacrifice themselves for you. So that's probably one of the best advice that I got. I know my teammates uh, played uh, played really really hard, and we just you guys. I know you just had Dano uh, on the phone here, and you know he was one of them also. Yeah, he sure was. Yeah, it was uh, It was just magical that I got to be around 18 years while you were there and 18 years while there were a lot of wonderful players. And um, I wound up with three rings for it, and I didn't even work for the team. Chico and I wound up working for another company, but we got to watch a lot and we got to enjoy a lot, and you were a part of so much of it. It's, it's just so exciting to have you and Larry Robinson and Ken Danico a part of this hour. And I won't forget this. I thank you. Uh, that's my pleasure. Uh, once again, enjoy retirement. You deserve it. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. I've been retired for a few years, and I'm enjoying it. So <laughs> you're still working, young man. Yeah, <laughs> a different kind of work. I realize. Let me give you one bit of advice. If you announce your retirement, don't come out with a book the next day. You don't get a chance to breathe for a long time. Thank you. Thank you, Marty. So thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. We do have a few minutes left. And, Doc, we know it's been a busy time. And you've been so gracious to give us more uh, time to to spend with you. So, Chico, uh, I know you've been patiently waiting behind a couple of Hall of Famers. Uh, but now it's your time. I know you've had some things you wanted to discuss over the last 10 minutes or so. Well, you know, first and foremost, most people know Doc. They know his public persona and all about him. But as you know, too, Maddie, and I do, Behind the man who spends so much time, any man involved in a sport like Doc has, he he's unique. But I got to tell you, it's it's too bad that the fans couldn't meet Joyce, because if Joyce and Doc are side by side, she's stealing the show. And so Doc, <laughs> <laughs> just because just she's sec. such a delight. But Doc, oh, oh, uh, so I'm, I'm what I'm gonna we're ask going to have a would, visit from Joyce. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not sure. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, but Joyce was was such a support person. And it was funny when Doc said that the flyer said, well, we'll keep her contract and renew it. But oh, there that, she is. Oh, uh, we get the we oh. get the photograph. I thought maybe we'd get the the live appearance. But uh, Joyce is such a, a wonderful woman. No question. Now, that picture was taken at uh, during the 2010 Olympics at that bridge in Vancouver. Where, mm. <laughs> where he had his picture. There he is. <laughs> the man, the man himself, Chuck the Duck. Yeah. But, but Doc, just tell us a little bit. You met Joyce in hockey, and then, of course, you were gone so much, and she was had to do her own thing, but I know she gave you great support and comfort. And so just, just give us a little insight into that wonderful woman you've been married to for so long. Yeah, 42 years. We met the second year I was in professional hockey, which was in uh, 1974 at a church function in Port Huron. 
in Michigan, well, near where we live today. And uh, we dated for for three years, and uh, then I got a chance to go to a league of higher, higher classification and a team that didn't look like it was going to fold every year, which Port Huron did. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, she had maintained all along that she knew that my ambition was to be in hockey the rest of my life in the NHL. And her thought was to always remain here because her family was here and she liked it here. So when I went to Maine, uh, after about three or four months, I placed a phone call and said, um, what do you think about coming out here and looking the, looking it over and maybe us making a life together? Because, you know, you didn't live together. I mean, you just didn't do that, especially back then. And uh, she said, no, I... I just don't think so. This has always been my way. And then after, and then of all things, the Maine Mariners' first preseason game is against the St. Louis Blues B team in Port Huron, Michigan. So of all things, I'm back here. And uh, so I got tickets for her and a couple of her girlfriends. And then we, we, uh, Got a chance to visit for a few minutes after the game before he got on the bus and and uh, agreed to at least phone call again. And then eventually she decided, well, I'll come out and see what Portland is like anyway. And uh, so at Christmas time, she came out to see it for a couple of days. And and then uh, on Easter, we got engaged. Uh, we realized, I guess, both of us that we uh, probably couldn't get along as well uh, without each other as we thought we could. And then she bit the bullet, left home, and uh, we were in Portland for three years and Philadelphia area for 10, Hershey, Pennsylvania, because we like small towns and commuted to Philadelphia, where she worked in the ticket office dealing with all the Flyers fans that had problems at the window. And, um, and then I wound up working for them and then eventually, as you know, with the Devils. But when I wound up doing network telecasts, they didn't care where I lived. And so in 1996, we moved back to about 10 miles from Port Huron at a time when both my family and hers were uh, parents were getting older and needed a little more attention. But there, I was figuring up, we've been married 42 years, and uh, she has probably been on her own at... Uh, uh, for probably 5,000 nights. And once Whoa. in a while, is there's been a time that I've been here by myself with the dogs, and I'm thinking, how on earth has she done this? Um, <laughs> it's com It certainly is commitment, mm. and it's certainly love, and it's understanding because she saw enough hockey in the 10 years in Philadelphia when she worked for the Flyers, she didn't need to see another game the rest of her life. But she's just a wonderful human being. So I got lucky. I just got lucky. And that's all I can say. She's the love of my life. And I thought I was going to lose her when I met when I went to Maine. But after a few months, why she agreed to make that trip. Um, so that's it. That's the story in a nutshell. And uh uh, we we always joke around and say, don't we, that the nice people get married too, and she is a nice person. <clears throat> yes, that is wonderful, story. Yeah, just a, a terrific story. There's so much we could talk about because your career has been so exemplary. Uh -huh. You know, one one of the things I've always 
said about hockey is the waters may not be very wide, but they run awfully deep. And lo and behold, in your book, again, off Mike, how a kid from baseball, crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice written by Kevin Allen, the, the fabulous now former USA Today writer left in December yeah. 2019. But at any rate, early on, there's a story about Moose Lalo, and I remember Chico ah! telling stories about Moose Lalo, and I'm I go, these waters are really deep. In almost <laughs> the very in the first few pages, first twenty five anyway. There's a Moose Lalo story. He gets into a fight with Con Madigan, and I'm like, I know Moose Lalo, <laughs> but I got to know him only through the stories that you both told. It's a great story. Yeah, yeah it is. A moose just passed away uh, this last winter at age 95. Con Madigan I spoke with about two weeks ago. He's still living in Portland, Oregon. He is in his 80s now and sounds as though he could probably take a shift if you needed one. <laughs> probably to stand near the net and jab somebody with a stick to make sure they didn't mess with the goaltender. You would have liked playing with him in front of you, Chico. Yes, yes. Doc, you know, I'm curious. The other question I have, I, I know you had a great uh, special day. You, your brother, Dan, and your dad, Chuck, you would plan this time to go to Fort Wayne and see the Comets play. Can you just walk us through like your anticipation, you know, the day before the day of, and when you walked in the arena, what you're thinking, ah, well, that is, is the Comets. That's it. Woo. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, well, the first time, and I sometimes ask kids this. And in, in when I get to speak at journalism classes, um, to describe the first major important sports event they ever went to. It doesn't have to be a, a, a big game like a college game or a youth hockey game or anything that was really major in their lives. And if the class is small enough, I ask each one to do it. And when they recount the first one, maybe the second one they couldn't do this, but the first one they can, the detail that they recall is usually very good. And they invariably will remember the teams. They'll remember some players. They'll remember the feeling they had when they first saw the field or the ice. And they may remember the score. They'll usually remember who won. But almost the entire story is told with a smile on their face. And it may be 8 o'clock in the morning, and they may not be very happy about being in class at 8 o'clock in the morning, but the story is recalled with a smile on their face. And that's what all of us get to do. And so we would go to uh, uh, the first time I ever went to a Comets game. I had never seen ice that white. I'd never seen ice live except for Holiday on Ice, which didn't strike me as anything nearly like a hockey game. And uh, there were screens around the outside of the rink uh, rather than plexiglass. We didn't have that then. And uh, Muskegon, your old team, was wearing uniforms that were so blue I'd never seen anything like it. And the Comets were in, like you see there, they were white uniforms that night with black pants. And the potato chip sponsored Zamboni went back and forth. I didn't understand why it didn't scrape up the red and the blue lines too, but I hadn't fully <laughs> understood a lot of that. But the fact that Madigan and Lalo fought with two seconds left in the overtime when the score was tied, uh, those were real punches, and I was, I was hooked. That one game 
hooked me on the sport. I went into the Coliseum that night wanting to be a baseball announcer, and I came out wanting to do hockey. You can imagine what my high school guidance counselor thought when at age 14, I had told him that I wanted to become a hockey announcer living in this small corn-fed town of 600 people in rural Indiana. But it's what happened. Yeah. That, that was it. And you do remember detail of your first, I'll bet you remember the detail of the first game you broadcast, Matt. And I'll remember, Chico, you will remember the first detail of the first Bulldogs game you played for the University of Minnesota Duluth. Yeah. Yes. You do. Yes. You, you recall those things vividly, vividly for sure. Unfortunately, time has wound down. Uh, yes. Uh, what an eventful you... night this is for me. Oh, it's been awesome. It's been awesome. It and I've got about 7,000 other hey. questions I wanted to get to, uh, but the stories were Hey, fabulous. Maddie. Yeah. Maddie, I got, I got to tell the folks one thing that Doc first told me, that every one of us, especially in today's society and going forward, should remember. Doc says, I mean, this I'm paraphrasing. Doc says, Chico, you know, I'm just starting out as an announcer. I, I don't know how good you're going to be. I, I, I don't need you to be perfect. <laughs> I don't need you to. No, because you knew. But you said, Chico, if you could do one thing, and I know you can, that is be enthusiastic. If it's a cross ice dump into the other corner, talk about it like it was a really good cross ice dump. And, you know, I carried that with me and, and it helped me every night to say, yeah, Doc says at least I can be enthusiastic, even if I mumble and, and struggle in other areas. And that's such a great lesson in life, Doc. And I know you've done it. You know, just come with a good attitude and the best you can. And you'll influence a lot of people like you have, Doc. So thank you very much. Thanks to thanks to all of you. Well, Doc, thank you very much for your time. We'll let uh, let you run. We know you have another engagement. We appreciate you giving us so much of your valuable time tonight. Best of luck to you. And folks, get the book, Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy. Indiana became America's NHL voice. All I have to say is this is Diet Pepsi. None of that stinking root beer. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, have Great yourself Andy. a walk. Have a wonderful <laughs> night, Doc, and say hi to Joyce. Be well. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. Uh, you know what? I wanted to mention Chico, and, and Doc has left. And, oh, Lord, there was just so much we could have gotten into. But here's the thing. He was as happy and joyful to ask questions of Marty and Larry and Dano. Doc, Doc loves the game. He loves the sights and the smells and the people and the stories they tell. And yeah, he sits, you know, on the top of the mountain, but he does love, uh, by the way, <laughs> two of those guys are Hall of Famers. So they join him at the top of the mountain, Larry Robinson and and Marty Brodeur. But you know what I mean? He, he, he yeah. loves the equipment managers as much as he loves the Hall of Famers, just loves the game. Well, you're right, Maddie. And another lesson that he learned, and this is true in life, if you are humble, people will lift you up. If you're kind of full of yourself and <clears throat> kind of appear that you've got to be first all the time or you've got to be the, the center of everything, people then will start to say, hey, I'm going to bring this guy down a little bit. And you remember in the morning scrums when we would go into the room after each team would skate, I would watch Doc because I'm trying to learn from him. He would never rush up and be the first to ask a question. He always hung in the background and was patient and would listen. And, and that was okay. That was part of his personality. But then when everyone else had gone, Doc would sneak in and ask 
whoever it was, a personal question. But that humility, as you know, Maddie, really rubbed off on especially the players who were confronted by a lot of egos from the media. And Doc never had it. He could have, but he didn't. And I know you're like that too, Maddie. And just another life lesson that you don't have to project yourself to be great because Doc never did. Just let your actions speak for themselves and people will notice. And we certainly all have noticed, as the guy said, we're losing one of the iconic announcers ever in hockey and he will definitely be missed. There is no question about that. We wish him the very best of luck. And hopefully at some point when things do calm down, we get through the holidays, you and I can get him back for a part two where we can really delve into a bunch of things. There would be, that would be wonderful. I mean, from a story he tells in his book about a fight that went out into the lobby by the ticket sales booth and the ice cream parlor owner across the street, her doc announcing the game came across the street to stand outside the doors and look in at these two guys <laughs> fighting outside the ticket office while doc is describing the fight going on on the ice. Anyway, there's a bazillion stories about his days coming up to the devils. And of course, a multitude of stories we could tell about, uh, and he could tell about his time with the devils. I'm going to leave it with this because he speaks very highly of you both publicly in the book and, of course, privately as well. But in the book, he says this. God put Chico in my life to help me at a time when he knew I needed it most. He with a capital H. Resh helped me find humility to understand that I shouldn't take myself too seriously. Unquote. And from that, a great relationship developed on and off the ice. Chico, the fans loved watching you too every night. The winning helped, but you made it even better. And uh, you, you, you've developed a relationship off the ice as well. Great friends. And thank you for sharing time with us tonight as well. Well, thank you for pointing those kind words out. That means a lot coming from Doc. And, and working with you, Maddie, I've been very fortunate to, to work with humble people who really know their, their craft. And uh, I'm blessed to do that now with you and certainly with Doc for all those years. Boy, I wish we had another 50 minutes or more to speak with Doc Emmerich. The stories were fabulous, and I know Devils fans everywhere enjoyed hearing him speak, and, and our special guests who joined us, Marty Dano and Larry Robinson. So, Catherine Bogart, we go from one broadcaster to another on this edition of Speak of the Devils. We do. And another, I guess, Hall of Famer broadcaster as well, mm -hmm. Christine Simpson, who is very well known in Canada for her work with Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada specifically. She has left such a mark on the broadcast um, industry so far. And she's she's still going. She's still a huge part of broadcasting up in Canada. So it's nice to hear not only from Doc in this episode, but now from Christine. Two icons in the broadcasting business joining us on this edition of Speak of the Devils. Let's check in in just a moment. Congrats on the new house, honey. What's this? Carbon monoxide detectors? Yeah, put one on every level. Because you can't see or smell carbon monoxide. And when fuel-burning appliances aren't working right, CO can build up and be deadly. Guys, I'm on it. We just want to know you're safe. At PSENG, we're committed to your family's safety. Know how to prevent carbon monoxide poisoning. If your CO detector goes off, leave immediately. Then call 911. Protect the ones you love. Learn more at PSEG.com slash gas safety. Welcome in. I'm Catherine Bogart. Joining me now is a pioneer in broadcasting for Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada, Christine Simpson. Christine, thank you so much for being here today. 
Thank you for the invitation, Catherine. It's my pleasure. Christine, you have an extensive career covering the NHL, the Olympics for a variety of different stations. You were part of Sportsnet from the beginning and you have also been in our homes for Hockey Night in Canada for the past few seasons. How did you first get started on this illustrious career that you have had? Well, it's one of those things where if I didn't grow up the middle sister between two hockey playing brothers, I don't know that I would be sitting here talking to you right now about (laughs) hockey. Yeah, I really did start with just my family uh, growing up, being dragged around to rinks uh, to watch both of my brothers play. I would just say that is where my love of hockey began. I mean, and I'm a Canadian girl. We all grow up around the game. But then eventually, um, professionally, I would gotten involved in marketing and I was the marketing manager at the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto back in the early 90s. From that, I got hired by the Maple Leafs as their first in-arena host. And then honestly, I kind of fell into it when Sportsnet was launching this brand new sports network in Canada here in Toronto. They were looking for new people. I sent in a VHS tape. That's how long ago (laughs) it was of me actually doing my thing at at, um, Leaf Games or me being interviewed by crews that would come to visit the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I don't know, I guess they just saw something there. And at least they knew, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to hockey. And uh, it all began, for better or worse, it all began then. With this love of hockey that you've had your entire life, what are some of your favorite memories around the sport outside of your career growing up with these hockey brothers and a hockey family in Canada? Well, I got to say one of the most exciting days, you know, looking forward to the NHL draft, which I know will be a little different this year, but my first NHL draft was 1985 and it was the year my brother Craig Simpson was drafted by the Pittsburgh Penguins. Ironically, the draft was held in Toronto that year. So for us growing up just two hours away in London, Ontario, it was easy to be able to come. And I'll never forget because that that year, uh, Wendell Clark ended up being picked first overall by the Toronto Maple Leafs and Craig went second overall by Pittsburgh. So it's so funny for me now for so many years watching the draft and seeing the parents and the siblings and the girlfriends in the stands. I know exactly what that feeling is like and just how excited it is to be able to hear, in my case, your brother's name being called. So that for sure is one of the highlights. And now looking at your career, because that's an incredible highlight alone to watch your brother go second overall in an NHL draft. So look at your career and you've had an incredible career. What are some of the highlights from that career so far? Wow, so many. I mean, gosh, you never get tired of of Stanley Cup playoff time. Um, You're right, I was involved in the Olympics uh, in 2010 in Vancouver. But I don't know, I think to some of the the most amazing moments, um, being at Madison Square Garden in Wayne Gretzky's last game. And of course, by that it was special to me because I had known Wayne. He was a a teammate of my brother's when they played together uh, for the Edmonton Oilers. Um, I don't know. There are are just so many. It's it's probably hard to pick just one, but I would say, um, yeah, Wayne's last game. And anytime you can be in a dressing room and again, see the excitement, see the champagne uh, being, you know, celebrated with the families and the players that just put it this way, it never gets old. As a reporter, your job is to tell these stories. For those who are watching at home, for those who are reading, those who are listening, how have you learned to tell the stories in a way that can get the most information out there 
and can bring in fans who are not only pro hockey fans, but also the casual fan who maybe is just turning on the TV. Well, I find a lot of the times and whether, you know, it's hockey you're talking about or any other sports, some of my favorite stories that I've done with hockey players, we have actually haven't talked about hockey at all. It's the person, it's the person behind the story. And I think, you know, and whether it is something um, that they can celebrate or a challenge that they overcame or a loss in their life. Um, I think when you can show these, you know, bigger than life superstars that, you know, people might look up and say, they are nothing like me. When you can show the human side of that, of that player, I think quite often it makes you go, oh, okay. You know, I want to root for that guy because now I see either something he's overcome or something he has done within his community that makes you go, he didn't really have to do that. But the the fact that he wanted to, I want to root for that guy. So yeah, I guess the common theme of the guys I interview is they happen to play hockey. But to me, if you can if you can introduce to a fan a player and 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 really make them understand something about them that they wouldn't have known outside of hockey, that to me is what makes them interesting and really just shows they're human beings with with their own stories. Hundred percent. You're one of the front faces for women in hockey broadcasting throughout North America. So many people have looked up to you in their own careers or just even watching hockey. When you think of the role model role that you have as this face of Hockey Night in Canada and for Sportsnet, how do you hope to inspire other women to get involved in covering hockey as a broadcaster? Well, I think just by having done it for as long as I have, uh, right off the bat, I know I've made a difference. I often will have, you know, young women, if I'm doing games in any NHL cities, come up to me and say, you know, I'm doing this. I decided I wanted to do this because as a young girl, I was watching you do. It makes me feel old, but also makes me feel very proud because I've got to admit there really weren't women for me to watch doing hockey broadcasts as a little girl. So even though I grew up watching Hockey Night in Canada every Saturday night with my family and obviously loved the game because of my exposure to the sport through my brothers at a young age, it never even dawned on me that that could be a career path for me until well into my 20s and started thinking, oh, yeah, you know what? I love the game. Uh, I love being in front of camera. Maybe I could put the two together and make a career out of it. So there is no better joy I get than to have someone come up to me, a young woman, and say, I only felt I could do this because because I saw you did it. Because no matter what walk of life you come from, I think women need those roles. They just need to see that there is a possibility, you know, whether you're an astronaut or, or a member of Congress, if you can see a woman do it, a young girl can look and say, I could do that too. As we see more women getting these roles in hockey that are traditionally not roles that women have held in the past, whether it's scouting, getting into the coaching side of things, even on the path of becoming a general manager, how have you seen this development of more women getting involved in sports throughout your own career? Yeah, and I love it because you're right. It isn't just the broadcasting side of things, whether whether it is through scouting or, you know, I've been able to interview some amazing women over really over the last few years because they have been making a difference. Um, and again, it's the same thing. If you have the right background, if you have the skill set, you know, the sky's the limit. I, and I look here in Toronto, even uh, 
Haley Weckenheiser is a part of the Toronto Maple Leaf Club. You know, from a from a skills and development standpoint, I mean, she's a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. What what NHL player wouldn't want to look to her and think that I can learn something from her? And you see it, you see it everywhere now in the game. And I'm I'm always uh, impressed by the male coaches, executives, and managers that have that kind of way of thinking and that open mind that they're looking for the best candidate. And that if you just hire people that are exactly the same as you, you're really missing out on the diversity that, that is this sport and, and is our world. And luckily, there are a lot of uh, male executives that are, are open to that because that is what it takes. Because right now, it's still very much the men holding the position of power, but we're making headway. How how can we make headway even more? You just mentioned it, but I want to dive deeper into that. How can we really see an impact in getting more women in these positions? We're already halfway, maybe three quarters of the way there, but how do we get to that total equality of gender? I think by having the conversations and by making it more, more normal, by, by pushing the envelope. And I'll just give you an example from the broadcast standpoint. A year ago, um, a number of us in the high the few women in the in the hockey department uh, at Sportsnet said, you know, we really want to do something to celebrate International Women's Day, which is March, March 8th. Well, a year ago, we had the idea, okay, well, on Hockey Night in Canada, for the first time ever, we had an all-female panel with Ron McLean um, talking about women in the game and women in sports in general. So that was a big step to at least be able to push the envelope and have that in the pregame show. Well, a year later, because we thought, okay, we've started the conversation. We need to make, we need to go further. So, and ironically, it was the last game I did on March 8th before the NHL paused. We did on that International Women's Day, our first ever all-female broadcast. It was in Calgary, the Flames versus the Vegas Golden Knights. Leah Hextall doing the play-by-play. Cassie Campbell-Pascal was our analyst, but not just that. I was the ringside reporter, our producer, our, our director. Most of our production team were women. You know, it, it takes us having the conversation and it takes people like me whose voice I don't know if it matters, but they can't ignore me if I go to the bosses and say, you know what, we should be doing this and look around you. Others are doing it. Do we want to be the last network to do that or do we want to lead the way? So I have no problem actually shaming people into doing the right thing. But, you you know, you have to have that conversation. And then the more you see women in roles like that, frankly, the more normal it becomes instead of just thinking, oh, look at that. That's just a token role. I mean, it's not. It's women who have proven that they're up for the job. And um, it's just, it's great to see, hey, we, we've come a long way, but we, stu- we still do have a long way to go. We still do. And something that we've also seen this year is the changes that have been made because of COVID. So we are social distancing. We are working from home. In fact, we're conducting this interview over Zoom, which is so Maybe a year ago, no one ever thought we would do that. But here we are. This is commonplace now. So as you see this opportunity with things switching digitally and virtually, what advice do you have for those who want to get involved in broadcasting to use this opportunity in this digital world to get a head start in ways that they might not have been able to five, 10 years ago? Absolutely. I mean, what this has proven to us is that you do not need to you know, go into a television studio and be hired to do a job. 
You can do it in your basement. I mean, I know that sounds so cliche, but you can. If you've got an idea, I mean, hey, we've, we've all got a computer. We've pretty much all got Wi-Fi. If you've got an idea, you can create content. And again, when, when I started the idea of content creation, it would be like, what is that? I get hired to do a show. You tell me you know, where to do it and how to do it. Well, that's all gone away. I mean, just be as creative as you can be. You know, podcasts didn't exist when I started. Twitter didn't exist when I started. Social media wasn't a thing. I would always, I mean, you know, say to especially younger people, figure out what you can do with what um, the platforms that are that are out there now, but also figure out what the next thing is going to be because our world is changing as and 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 maybe a little bit of a silver lining with everything that's gone on and with us being, you know, sort of locked in our homes for as long as we have. Can you imagine what it would have been like if we didn't have Zoom to either be chatting with your friends or creating content? We certainly did that with Sportsnet, as I'm I'm sure you guys did. You just come up with ways to be interviewing players or having watch parties with classic games. You know, there's still a way to to come up with content. You do not have to wait for somebody to tell you or hire you. Create your content and basically make it so they can't ignore you. That would be the advice I give. That's amazing advice. And Christine, what are you up to right now during this quarantine period? I know that it's Stanley Cup finals right now. Unfortunately, we're not able to be on site for that. But what is in the schedule for you currently with your job? Well, I was lucky enough at least to have done the first three rounds with the Toronto bubble. So I was I was here doing games. And that was weird, too, being a ringside reporter for game broadcast. But you're actually up on the 300 level of the <laughs> arena with a headset, talking to a player three levels below and him just hearing your voice coming out of a speaker. But again, these are the times that we're in. Now, to, to be honest, I just got off of a Zoom meeting with our features team uh, at Sportsnet, already starting to come up with feature ideas that we can start shooting for either the off-season or next season. So it's exciting to even be watching the Stanley Cup final, but already uh, getting excited for next season. Christine, we cannot wait to see and watch the stories that you will be uncovering with Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time. Well, it was my pleasure. Uh, thank you for asking me to do this, Catherine. So someone whose career has come to an end, Doc Emmerich announcing his retirement as a 14-year-old. He was hooked on the game. And now, 60 years later, he's decided to end it. As you mentioned at the start, as we were introducing this segment, Christine Simpson, she's still kicking. She's not in Doc's demographic. So, Christine, don't get angry with me. But her career has been a very storied one as well. Yep. And when we spoke with her, she was actually the call previous, right before I interviewed her. She was speaking with the Hockey Night in Canada crew to plan features out for this season, even using Zoom, whatever they could do to start getting the stories rolling for Hockey Night in Canada. So Christine is back at it this season. She will have plenty of stories for our Canadian listeners to watch on television. And hopefully some of our American listeners can watch as well. I think one of the things that a thread that ran through both interviews is their love for the sport and the fact that they didn't, in Doc's case, don't, in Christine's case, take it for granted. They're hard workers, too. Very hard workers. And this industry, as you know, Matt, as I know a little bit, it is. it can be a grind. It can be a lot. But 
It's your passion for the storytelling. It's your passion for the sport that keeps you going, whether it's game 82 of a season or it's game one. And both of them have really amplified how important it is to be a storyteller and to use your knowledge in the sport to make it accessible for the casual fan all the way up to the hockey fanatic who has listened to every single broadcast. And as Doc mentioned in his interview, you can talk about goals, you can talk about saves, but it's the stories that people remember. And both of them among the very best at doing just that. And Catherine, you're getting there. You're getting <laughs> Thank there you. as well. We do <laughs> well, appreciate it. from you. <laughs> oh, well, listen, hey, uh, it's it's been a pleasure on this edition of Speak of the Devils. We hope all our listeners appreciated the insights from Doc Emmerich and Christine Simpson. For everyone involved, I'm Matt Lachlan. Thank you so much for your time. Be safe, be well. We'll talk to you next time, everybody. 